0: Hello, and welcome to the Diversity Beyond the Checkbox podcast, season five. I'm your host, Jackie Ferguson, certified diversity executive, writer, human rights advocate, and co-founder of the diversity movement. On this podcast, I'm talking to trailblazers, game changers, and glass ceiling breakers who share their inspiring stories, lessons learned, and insights on business, inclusion, and personal development. My guest today is Kelly Cooper. Kelly is the founder and CEO for the Canadian-based Center for Social Intelligence, which helps leaders create a diverse and inclusive transformation through targeted audits, assessments, and action plans. Kelly has worked in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and Europe creating sustainable development projects. Kelly, thank you for joining us. It's so good to talk to you again.
1: Thank you for having me,
0: Jackie. It's a pleasure to be here. Of course. So i love to start uh, with a little bit about your background, your family, your identity, whatever you'd like to share.
1: I guess I can say that I'm the youngest of five kids. I had Mm -hmm. three older brothers. Two of them were quite significantly older. They were 10 and 12 years older. Mm -hmm. And so that influence was quite significant. Obviously, um, they were kind of rough with me and they weren't like the protected little girl in my house. It was more like rough and tumble and um, calling of names. And, you know, I had to develop up a thick skin. Let's just say that. And uh,
0: sure. yeah,
1: hard to get airtime. You know, I kind of grew up mm-hmm. with a competitive environment, you could say. Uh, okay. my, one of my brothers used to say my mother had five children: Kelly, 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 and Kelly. <laughs> so, <laughs> you can imagine I was like, "Hey, I was just born. I didn't uh, ask for this." But it, it was that kind of an environment. And then my mother and father divorced when I was quite young. I was about nine, okay. and so those were the days when you really weren't getting divorced. You know, this was like nineteen eighty yeah.
0: mm-hmm. or
1: seventy nine. So you know, it was my mom was a bit of a you know liberal woman. And kind of set that course, I guess, in my mind too, in terms of feminism, in a way, right? So, yeah, yeah I guess that's a snapshot. I don't want to get into my whole uh, whole story for you, but
0: so let's talk about your background because I I often find that successful people start down one path, right, but then pivot into what they're really meant to do. So, can you talk a little about your professional journey?
1: So I think I've been pretty square in the sustainable development world my whole career. Mm -hmm. I graduated from the University of Toronto in 1993, so that shows Mm -hmm. my age. But that was at a time when the word sustainable development was just born. It was 1987 when that word was coined uh, through the United Nations. And I had an environmental science degree and sustainable development to me was awesome. I was like, this is the future. And I could see that right away because it's all about building an economy that's not compromising the environment or social issues Mm. and making it sustainable for the future generations. So to me, that was like, that makes a lot of sense. And um, within the sustainable development realm, they they go through what's called Agenda 21. And it was really for setting the tone for the 21st century on what the world issues are that we have to face. And so... Within Agenda 21, they're, they created, the United Nations created 40 chapters. A bunch of them are focusing on environmental issues, and a bunch of them are focused on social issues. So mm-hmm. things like climate change, biodiversity, deforestation, those kinds of big topics were the environmental issues. And then on the social side, it was all about things like women and addressing poverty and those kinds of things. So. Mm-hmm. To answer your question, it's a long way around it, but sustainable development really set the context for my world. And I worked primarily for the first 20 years on the environmental issues of sustainable Mm -hmm. development. So really got in deep on climate change, Uh, worked on that through the federal government here in Canada. I worked as a policy advisor to ministers on that issue, uh, represented Canada at the United Nations meetings and that kind of stuff. And I also worked on Oceans, another big global agenda item under Sustainable Development mm-hmm. and Agenda 21. All of those conversations, as you know, too, with climate change is, how do you put a dollar on things like air? How do you put mm-hmm. a dollar on a shared ocean? Because mm-hmm. you have competing interests, right? You have tourism, mm-hmm. you have oil and gas, you have mm-hmm. a whole bunch of things, fishing industry, obviously. And, yeah. and so these competing interests, and you have to make it sustainable for all, all industries to su- survive in the future. Right? So those are the very complicated questions right? and complicated policy decisions that need to be made, but all to the goal of creating sustainability. So very interesting work for me. I, I really enjoyed it, but I got a little tired of the old boys network. Being the only, like often the only single woman yeah. in and science space, you know, that whole STEM issue, it just was an, an exhausting situation to find mm-hmm. myself in time and again, harassment issues pay inequity stuff, like all that basket of tricks. So about 10, 12 years ago now, I just started to think, well, I wonder what the social side of sustainable development is and how do we get a return on our investment from that? Just as we were trying to get a return on the investment from air, you know? How do we do it with the social Mm -hmm. side? That's not really made any sense to me yet. So I started to do some research and I pivoted into the social side by looking at how to get women in particular into senior executive roles and in technical positions in the natural resource sectors because that's been my background is in natural resource sectors right sorry that was a very long answer for you
0: no i appreciate that that's that's so great and you know it's interesting because esg is such an important part of governance from the corporate perspective corporate boards are thinking about esg more and more but it's really been in the past 10 years or so that that's become a really important part of one the pillars of how they look at businesses to to lead businesses right but so it's interesting how early you got into it mm-hmm. um and thinking about that kelly from your perspective what do business leaders in general need to be thinking about or need to know about environmental, and social sustainable development? And what can they do from their individual perspectives and general business to, to move that forward? So the first part I would say
1: is they need to understand that the generation that are entering the workforce today really have strong values connected with environment and social issues. Yes. And in order to attract the best talent, they need to make sure their business, corporate priorities, values are aligned with environment and social values of today. And that's really important because um, the research I've done shows that the generation entering the workforce today are even prepared to have a reduced paycheck to work for an organization that has those kinds of values Absolutely. so that's an important thing i think that they really need to understand is that our generation previous generations mm-hmm. they just wanted a paycheck mm-hmm. you know they didn't i mean they, they grumped about it but the truth is is they didn't force the conversation you could say and there wasn't just that awareness about that stuff so that's one of the big things i would say hmm and your second question again? Sorry,
0: <laughs> just what can business leaders do to move these initiatives forward from where they sit?
1: Well, I think they they really need to do that uh, senior executive uh, retreat analysis on what their uh, mandate is as it relates to environment, social issues, yeah. and then through that they they need to set up an entire like like for in the whole diversity and inclusion realm. I always speak about. The the C suite needs to get organized with what they want to achieve, and tie their business objectives to their DNI objectives tightly, and then they need to put their their resources to it. So human and financial, like dedicate people to that role to steer the organization through a systematic approach to shifting the workplace culture to being more receptive to women and all other under, underrepresented groups. Mm-hmm. And there's quite a process I, I recommend for people to go through or executives to go through to ensure that it's sustainable.
0: Thank you for that. And you know, it's what you said at the beginning around employees being okay with a reduced paycheck, right? That is a major shift in society where in previous generations, we were looking to make the most money, keep our head down, keep working, work through the you know traditional promotions. And now it's it's a different thought process. and we're finding that that's what's happening with the great resignation is that people are looking for places to spend their time, you know, in the workplace where they feel that their values align, where they feel good about what they're doing. Money is part of it, right? The salary is part of it, but it's not all of it. That's right. And you've got to have the kind of culture an environment for them that makes them feel good about being there. So that's that's so spot on. Love that, thank you for sharing that. Kelly, let's talk about the Center for Social Intelligence. What does your organization do and what kind of clients do you serve?
1: I serve all clients in all sectors, but I really target the leadership cadre of the organization because that's where I think change needs to start for anything along the lines of diversity and inclusion. So getting them aligned as a a board or as the C-suite themselves to kick the tires on the topic. There's a lot of biases, obviously, and misunderstandings that need to be cleared up. And they all need to be organized and on the same page in order to effectively make a shift in their workplace. So I start with those people and we work through a, um, a process for that to get them on the same page. And once that's done, it's really about, it really gets exciting because to watch the light bulbs go on and have them understand the value proposition, as I phrase it, and so they get it. And then it's like, okay, now what do we do? And then it becomes almost a process of um, competing, I find. Uh, And that's Mm -hmm. the work I'm doing in one particular sector right now has been almost like a movement on this topic. Mm -hmm. What I'm seeing is that these executives are now competing amongst themselves to to show that they're doing the best as it relates to DNI, and this is perfect conditions of, for success in my mind, because, you know, these organizations are largely run by men yeah. and they like to compete. They just want to know what are the rules of the game and let me go and do it. So once they get that understanding of why they need to do this and how it will help them, it's really exciting to watch it unleash and, and what change comes from that. So we do that. I also help organizations with the pros, going further from the executive into uh, the training and looking mm-hmm. at how to overcome resistance to diversity and inclusion across the organization. Mm. Uh, talking about things like how to become an inclusive culture, what that means, how it's different from a traditional workplace culture, yeah. and um, also about allyship and and how we have a role, both white man and woman, to mm-hmm. speak up and make space for underrepresented individuals, whether they're male or female or gender neutral, mm-hmm. to get into these positions of seniority so that they can succeed as well.
0: Mm-hmm. And Kelly, let's dig into the name of your organization, Social Intelligence. Let's talk about what that means. Sure.
1: So I I, I coined this phrase back when I started in this social element, as I mentioned, of sustainable development. And And what it means to me is, um, it's when an organization acknowledges, addresses, and invests in the social dimensions of an organization, such as gender diversity and inclusion. It can also include mental health issues, with the goal of increasing the productivity, the well-being of the people in your organization and the bottom line. And it's achieved by giving individuals in an organization the necessary tools and skills to develop themselves to create a healthy and sustainable work environment for everyone. Mm -hmm. So that's what I, that's the trademark sort of technical um, explanation for it. But really it's about creating a place where people feel they belong.
0: Mm, Absolutely. And, you know, ultimately that's what we all are craving, right? Mm -hmm. That's what we all need. It creates such a Difference in how we work as individuals and our productivity goes up and the retention goes up for an organization when you can create that sense of belonging. So that's yeah. so important, so important
1: and one of the things too, i I just to mention from just thinking about what we were talking about earlier is that these people at the c-suite they have to understand that it's a different game now. Mm-hmm. Like everyone has a phone. Everyone's on a social yes. platform. you do something, Inappropriate, or if things aren't going well, it's out there, Mm -hmm. and it's out there in a flash, and it's hard to, you know, bring it back. So your reputation is always on the line. So it's so important to explain to these guys how how important, how valuable it is to keep this culture of belonging intact, right? right? Because anyone could, in some way, jeopardize their reputation
0: if they're not careful. That's exactly right. And, you know, what I've learned over the past five years or so is that your candidates are really digging in to understand your company before they even come to the interview.
1: That's right.
0: Right. And so back to your earlier point about recruiting the the best talent, you know, they are scouring your social media. They're talking to your employees.
1: Yeah
0: right, before they even hit that interview. And so, you know, the culture that you're creating, the the sense of belonging that you create with your current employees significantly impacts the type of talent that you're able to recruit. Mm -hmm. That's that's exactly right, exactly right. So Kelly, you've been in the um, diversity and inclusion space for about 10 years. Is that right? Yep, that's right. Perfect. How have you seen the industry change over that 10 years?
1: Well, it's been significant. When I started out with this, there was, it was really not even on the radar. So Mm -hmm. I just had a passion for it, you know, Mm -hmm. given my own experience of wanting to see more women in leadership roles, Mm -hmm. but I can speak to my context in Canada in particular. We, I was running a a women in mining national action plan project with uh, 12 mining executives to create a national national project here. And the intent was to create, you know, best practices for them to learn and how do they apply them through their own organizations. Okay. So Mm -hmm. that was in 2013. It's a three-year initiative. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: At that time there was really like, it was really swimming upstream on the topic. It was a bit of a miracle that that whole thing even happened. (laughs) You think about the mining sector, but then at, the end of that there was a shift here in Canada politically and our government changed and it became a liberal government and they chose women or gender diversity and inclusion as a priority mm. and I remember talking to the mining executives and saying will this make a difference for you that this policy is is this this is a policy they're waiving now and the people out west were like that doesn't make any difference to us And I thought, very interesting, but I thought it would. I mean, I'm in Ottawa, so that's the nation's (laughs) capital, so I'm more engaged with the government and politics. Sure enough, it did shift, and it was a tidal wave shift here in terms of focus on that issue. And that created a huge momentum to have access now to funding now that they didn't have as much, right? And so there were opportunities to do more interesting projects that we couldn't do before. And through that process, there has been a significant shift, I'd say, in attention on this issue. The Mm -hmm. corporate world is definitely paying more attention here in Canada. There's no question of that. It is a required piece of this puzzle to make a change happen, I think. So I've seen significant changes, and especially in the work I'm doing now, because I'm focusing in on the forest sector now, um, Mm -hmm. another one of these crazy male-dominated, I shouldn't say crazy, it's a great sector, but in terms of the the disproportionate, you know, balance of men and women in it. It's an exciting initiative because major change is taking place. And uh, I could go on and on about the project I'm working on there, but we're now moving into our fourth year. It takes time. (laughs) The beginning of that, it was all about creating the awareness for this issue. Mm -hmm. And that started in 2018. And then also, and through that, creating that desire to make a change. And so that was sort of our first three years of the project. Now we're moving into the next three years, which is all about giving these C-suite folks the skills and knowledge to take action. So as I describe in my book, how to be the change and how to make the change. Mm -hmm. So there's some really exciting things happening. And I feel so good about it because if I can do something significant in the forest sector, there's no other sector that cannot be turned over on this.
0: I love that. That's awesome. So Kelly, let's talk about your experience in these male-dominated sectors. What advice do you give to people who are underrepresented in moving into any sector or industry or business that, you know, where they're one of few or the only? What's your advice for them?
1: Well, I think it's important to have a strong network of others Mm -hmm. like you to keep your resilience because it is wearing Mm -hmm. as this sort of, I would say, social transformation occurs We're, I think in society in general, we're going through a massive social transformation. So recognizing we're kind of going from one way of being to another, and we're in the middle of that in this this place and time, we need to have resilience on getting through as we make it to the, the end goal that we all desire on this issue. So they, uh, you have to have that, you have to have allies, you know, inside senior allies would be a bonus, you know, creating that mentorship uh, dynamic. And in some organizations, they have employee resource groups, which are really helpful for, you know, getting a voice, a a larger collective voice Mm. to any issues that are of concern so that you can not only give input to senior management, but also senior management can benefit from your perspective as it relates to any product or service that they're trying
0: to deliver more broadly to customers or clients. Great advice. Now, Kelly, you've worked around the world. Can you talk a little about global diversity? What are some of the differences in diversity and inclusion with the trends that you've seen uh, in some of the places that you've worked?
1: Well, it's a whole different... Um, ball of wax, you could say, around the world in terms of priorities. What I'm what I, I mean, we have these issues in Canada too. I, I specifically don't focus on them. I I focus in on the leadership side. Mm-hmm. But ending violence against women is I would say a primary uh, global concern and mm-hmm. issue that is is definitely pre- prevalent in Canada. People think, oh, it's better hit Canada. It's actually not very good at all. Mm-hmm. Um, the mm-hmm. amount of money we spend to uh, invest in protection of women and policies and trying to help women in, in uh, you know, uh, safe homes so that they can have somewhere to go is, is, is astronomically expensive. Mm-hmm. So again, we got to get to the prevention of it. But globally, to your point, there are so many layers there on just that topic. Okay, mm-hmm. so that would be sort of my first one. My second one would be um, economic empowerment. Like how do we get women in um, other countries to get that equal opportunity Um, we are just not getting it right so that's another one and then the third one I would focus in on for me and it's not to make it the least but it's the leadership and governance you know so getting women into political positions safely we're finding that I think in the states too it's there's stories where it's just not good, you know, women trying to get into these political positions to, do inf- to make substantial influence. As a woman politician, you have a different perspective obviously on things and yeah. they're, they're getting uh, treated very poorly. And mm. um, we've had some cases here where it's just unbelievably bad behavior. And you're just like, mm. how do people think this is an option? So right. again, globally, I think that's a global issue that we, that we're facing.
0: You know, I, I love those three points. So safety, economic empowerment, and governance. That's, that's how you create empowerment, just general empowerment for any group. And and I think that's so important. Mm-hmm. Thanks for sharing that. Kelly, let's talk about your book, Lead the Change. Tell us all about it. What are we going to learn from it? Where can we get it? Okay.
1: Well, the book came out of this large sector-wide project I've been working on. I was telling you about it. I was working through things and figuring out what are the key issues to address. And what I found was that the the literature was very academic or it just wasn't written to the C-suite. And they were the ones that we needed to reach. And so that's the genesis of why or the impetus behind why I wrote the book. And it came together pretty quickly for me because it was very clear that they needed to understand the value proposition and they needed a blueprint for how to take action. And that's essentially what the book's about. So I spent a lot of time going through the cost of diversity inclusion in terms of not the, of inaction, the cost of inaction. So when people don't do anything and you have to face a sexual harassment case, that's expensive, you know, so it's better to get ahead of it. And then there's the cost of action, which is all that we hear about through large reports like McKinsey and company on, the business case, right? So there's lots of information there on better performance, greater innovation and agility, those sorts of things. So I I clearly articulate that those two pieces. I also go into the social benefits that aren't just there for women, but they're there for men
0: Mm.
1: and that they too can benefit from these, say work life balance policies Mm -hmm. such that men could also go, at four o'clock or three o'clock to their child's recital or hockey game or whatever it may be That's without right. being seen as jeopardizing their career advancement. So th- th- this is an issue that actually affects everyone, not just women. That's right. And as I keep going into this conversation, it's actually becoming more and more clear to me that this is actually a lot of an issue about men. Mm. And we need to be creating a safe space. We talk about creating a safe space for women to raise their voice, but we really need to create a safe space for men to call out their peers for their bad behavior because that isn't happening. So that's where I'm taking the conversation nowadays with these executives. And it's very interesting to watch. I mean, I've been connecting the dots on all the issues that we've had come out of hockey, you know, for her, like kids being harassed, mm. Catholic church, Boy Scouts. These are three fundamentals that kids were being thrown in all the time. No, nobody understood there was any issue with it. But now years later, we're hearing all these horrible cases of how these Mm -hmm. boys were were abused. Yeah. So like this is all part of the tapestry of the situation and conversation. And so there's a lot of things that have happened to these guys. Yeah. And that's why they're repeating the behaviors or they're emotionally distant or whatever it may be. And getting to those root issues, I think, as in a subtle way, but just unraveling that yarn and seeing, okay, this is an everybody issue. So that helps to have them understand that everyone has a role to play. Yeah, so let's see that's significant. So the book the book goes into that. I also share some of my own personal experiences of being uh harassed and with pay inequities and I weave those in. So some those are some interesting uh stories for people to uh, to learn about. Yeah. Yeah. So that's generally it. And and where you can find it? Well it's on Amazon, of course. It's uh on my website www.centerforsocialintelligence.ca you have to tell people it's center with a Canadian spelling, C E N T R E, and also uh, it's on in chapters, which is in our, our nationwide bookstore here in Canada. So okay. I'm very really happy it got into into chapters as well. It's mm-hmm. also available in audio, not just in hard copy.
0: Awesome! That is so exciting, Kelly. Let's talk about free to growcom
1: Okay. About that. So free to grow in forestry.ca is that forest sector-wide initiative I talked to you about briefly earlier in our chat here. And that was the, in 2017, when I finished the Women in Mining National Action Plan, the forest sector approached me to see if I could do something similar for them. So instead of just focusing on private sector executives, as I did in mining, I decided to leverage that thinking into a bigger picture to include um, public, private, not-for-profit, indigenous and academia representatives across the forest sector, across the country, to work in in unison on developing a new vision for the sector Mm -hmm. that included women and underrepresented groups and make them feel more welcomed and that they could belong. And from that, we created um, three pillars of action And they were all about, first one was all about building the evidence base. So what is the baseline data that we have here? And it was slim pickings, as you can imagine. It's like uh, there was hardly anything on the gender conversation, let alone Indigenous or other underrepresented groups. It was just like, it's very bare bare bones. Anyways, we collect the data. That's the building the evidence base pillar. Yeah. Second pillar is all about what we called fostering an inclusive culture, which is all about the skills and training required to shift the workplace culture. And then the third pillar was about repositioning the sector through, you know, imaging and communications and branding so that it was more attractive to women and underrepresented groups to enter the sector and simultaneously communication efforts on demonstrating to men what their role is to create that welcoming environment. Yeah. So those three pillars of activity have been underway, like you say, for the last three years, and it's been very successful if anyone's interested in learning about it. They can go to the free to grow in forestry.ca website where uh, there's everything we did to date research reports, tools uh, that are available for anyone from any, like any, they're applicable to any sector. They just happen to be developed through this initiative. My intention is to build a, a West and East Coast regional leadership teams, specific in the sector, where they can learn together and sort of attract, like, understand the regional. Attraction for top talent. If they work together and they're all doing this on DNI, they're going to see results in a way that any one organization on its own may not get. So there's power in the collective sort of thing.
0: That's amazing. And Kelly, let's talk a little bit about some of those pillars. So, what's your advice for how we begin as leaders to foster an inclusive culture?
1: It's really about uh, the leaders being visible and frequently communicating key messaging to their people about the their commitment. It starts with a commitment, but it has to be regularly announced and and, and woven into all of their engagements with employees yeah. to demonstrate this is a sustainable issue. This is actually not a a whimsical notion. It's not like it's gonna die in any time. It's it's this is here to stay. Yeah. So there's and then there's a number of things that just in the day-to-day practices, like in role modeling, how to behave, you know, and being mm-hmm. accountable for that behavior. There's so many things. Um, I, I talk a lot about there needing to be a coordinated effort between the leadership, the communications, and the HR at the most senior level. Yeah. Because right. that's the those are the pillars right there that I just talked to you about. It's leadership demonstrating their commitment and doing things through visible and regular frequent actions, Yeah. role modeling, communications, rebranding the whole organization to demonstrate their culture is welcoming to all of these uh, underrepresented groups
0: Yeah.
1: and explaining the value of that and how it benefits to the organization as a whole. Mm-hmm. And then the HR is all about collecting that data. There's a lot of, there's a lot of moving parts. I, I mean, it's hard to explain it all in, in a few seconds here, but uh, all to say that there's, Being that uh, example, I guess, for how they conduct themselves in meetings, making sure that you can have meetings, for example, where they might perceive someone who is, uh, let's say, from Chinese background as being very quiet and disconnected in the meeting because they're not speaking up. But if they understand an inclusive uh, culture mindset, they understand that that culture is not one to interrupt Mm -hmm. it's disrespectful to do that and so Mm -hmm. as a leader you could be showing um your understanding and applying those inclusive leadership skills by saying hey at the beginning of the meeting um i will go if anyone has anything to say please you know raise your hand i'll make a note of your name and i'll be sure to get you in in the lineup as opposed to somebody dominating the airwaves and then thinking oh you know that guy doesn't really have anything to add value and then he slowly becomes on irrelevant files. <laughs> Meanwhile, he actually has a lot of good ideas if we just gave him the airspace to do so. So those kinds of things. There's lots you could you can apply.
0: You know, that's such a great point, Kelly, because when oftentimes when we think about diversity and inclusion, we're thinking about it in the context of our own society. But global diversity and inclusion is a is a very different thing and understanding you know, the, the customs and, you know, the way that people work differently from country to country to country and being able to incorporate that. And it's become so important because so many more businesses are international now. So understanding how to message, understanding how to lead, understanding how to, you know, to navigate meetings, just as you were saying is, is so important and, and such a, an important competency as we, you know, become a more global society. Absolutely. That's such a great point. Yeah. I mean, people don't
1: go with, they have to lead with curiosity about different yes. cultures. And I think that's one of the things I've been able to benefit from, from all my travels. Like I spent a lot of time backpacking in Africa, for example, when I was in my wow. early twenties, you know, then I spent a lot of time in India. I spent eight months in India uh, working and living there before I was 30 But these experiences, they taught me that, you know, just learning about cultures, right? And so Mm -hmm. you inevitably start to normalize, which is what we have to do here, these various cultures and appreciate them for what they have to offer. Yeah. And enter into the conversation with curiosity so that we're learning, you know, we're not putting Mm -hmm. the onus on them to teach us. We're actually proactively engaging. And If we do that, you know, really, it shouldn't be that hard to be respectful of, you know, and recognize they have a lot to offer in their own way, which is the whole essence of
0: inclusive leadership. That's exactly right. Exactly right. So Kelly, I want to address, you know, you talked about your travels and backpacking through Africa and living in India before you were 30. Tell us how that impacted you or were there one or two stories that you could tell that that really significantly made a difference in how you view the world by being able to travel so early which is something that that most of us don't get to do until much later in life
1: well i really was determined to do it like i i saved money through my summers in school and i had a mentor at the time i worked for who really inspired me to go to africa I just fell in love with Africa. Like I literally tried to get a job as get this like a poaching, what's it there? The people who prevent the poaching in Zimbabwe. Uh-huh. I, I went in and applied and I had complete reverse um discrimination <laughs> from what I would have at home, right? Yeah. They looked at me like, what are you nuts? You're a white woman. What do you know about animals in, right. in Africa, let alone guns who are going to come at the animals? Mm-hmm. But to your point, I guess I don't know. I just I just fell in love with with traveling. Um, I had definitely had the travel bug after that. In fact, I cried all the way home to Canada. I was just like counterculture shock. Wow. Big time. I think for anyone who hasn't gone traveling and is listening today, it's important to understand that um, there's just so much to learn. You know, and if we, if we entered our lives with that sense of wonder, I guess, I don't want to sound Mm -hmm. naive or young or anything, but, but really just embracing diversity of thought, Mm -hmm. of food, of culture, there's just so much to benefit, you know, it's just Mm -hmm. so beautiful. Like, it's like, it's a mosaic in your life. And I've been so blessed to have that, like that. That adventure, I guess, spirit to take me to all kinds of interesting places, uh, where I've been able to do it either personally or professionally, mm-hmm. and and just go with that disposition to absorb everything. Like going to India was like a. I used to, I, used to, I used to tell my kids it's like a full court press to the senses. It's like the the mm-hmm. scent, the sight, the smell, the sounds. It's just overwhelming. You don't really digest it all until months later, and you're like, oh my God. You know, I used to have, I worked at the Tata Energy Research Institute, which was one of the most prestigious energy research institutes for Delhi Mm -hmm. and India in general. And um, I would walk to work, which was only a couple of blocks away. There would literally be three guys walking, I don't know, two, three feet in front of me, backwards, and just watching me staring at me, like I was this novelty. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and just so some crazy things like that, where I was like, what is going on here? Like they, this was Delhi too. This wasn't like, mm-hmm. like this was the international place for, for India, but just, yeah, I, you know, this was, but what year was that? That was the year 2000. So we're talking 21 mm-hmm. years ago. And that was when we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have, like the internet was really just starting. So I was quite alone over there in that sense. Mm. Um, I did have my boyfriend with me at the time, but uh, he wasn't walking with me to work. (laughs) But all to say, um, you know, it was it was interesting times, and I came back from that experience just so grateful for Mm. Canada because you know it was it was such a contrast to my world. I Mm -hmm. completely appreciated everything about being there, but I definitely had a new. Appreciation for what we have here in Canada, Mm. and I think that's another piece. For when you do travel, you come home, you're like, "Gosh, that was so interesting." Yeah, I appreciate more now what I have here than I did previous to that trip.
0: Mm -hmm. I try
1: and I try and get that message across to my children too. When you know they kind of take things for granted, right, or they they just assume everybody's doing the same things we are, and of course that's not the case. So, like, you need to get out there and you need to travel and, and see it for yourself and. When you come back, you feel empowered. And I think that was the thing that probably was the greatest takeaway from my travels is as a white woman, recognizing mm-hmm. my privilege, you know, and turning yeah. that into multiple benefits for those beyond myself. Seeing that I have a role, like I'm blessed to have a good education and mm-hmm. blessed to live here in Canada. Well, yeah. some people say, Kelly, why'd you go after the hardest sectors on this very difficult topic? Yeah. What's wrong with you? So, well, I'm, I'm, I'm the right person for the job. I've come to realize my growing up years, you know, I learned way too much about how guys think. Thanks to my (laughs) brothers, (laughs) I had to develop a thick skin. I had to learn to speak up for myself. And all of that at the time, I used to be so like, why am I in this family? But then now I kind of see how it's been for a purpose, you know? And then I've had these travels that have allowed me to understand these inclusive culture concepts, right? Again, buying it. And then being a white woman who is an ally for underrepresented people, for mm-hmm. intersectionality and so forth, and being able to speak comfortably with these C-suite guys, like all yeah. of these pieces make me the right, in the right place at the right time to be doing what I'm doing. Love that. So there's well. a lot there, but yeah, I, I, uh, I think I'm in a, in a position to be um, empowering others through mm. my leadership with this work. And I'm seeing that with the responses I get to my book. There's been a lot of receptivity to the book. A lot of guys in these C-suite positions in these forest companies are saying, Kelly, I'm recommending your book to my Canada, US peer group. This has really been helpful and they're doing stuff. Like it's amazing. It's just exciting.
0: Great, that's exciting. It is, absolutely. So Kelly, tell us something about you that not a lot of people know. I love to ask this question.
1: Well, I have two teenagers. Okay. They're my pride and joy. In fact, I would say I got into this line of work because of them, because I wanted to be more present uh, in their lives. And when they get to teenagers, they really don't want you around. But (laughs) (laughs) I would say that being a mom is my number one love. Yeah. And if you call it a job, whatever, but I love being a mom always did when they were little. I just, people would come over they thought I had a little daycare going on, but I, <laughs> I didn't, but I just loved it. And it's, I, it's something I, I oh, miss, you know, so like, you know, when you get older, you see them kind of diss you as they say, it's like, right. <laughs> I just want to go back in time. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, I would say that's probably it. People probably see me as somebody who is uh, you know, strong personality or whatever, really focused on her career. But I have a boatload of energy and I do all kinds of projects all the time. Um, It's kind of that give a job to a busy person sort of concept, but Mm -hmm. always boils down to my family is my number one. And
0: I I guess that would be something that people would definitely not know about me. (laughs) That's beautiful. Beautiful. And hang in there, Kelly, because once they go to college, they can really start to understand what they've got at home, and that relationship starts to to sink back up again. So how old are your two? Nineteen and seventeen. Okay, I also have a nineteen year old in in college, so it's different, right? Every stage is is different. so that's, yeah. that's so beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. Well, Kelly, what's the message that you want to leave with our listeners today?
1: I think it would be to go forth with curiosity on this topic mm-hmm. instead of thinking that others are to educate you. If you have people at work who are different than you, make a point of asking them questions. Yeah. You know, ask them for a recipe. You <laughs> know, something where you can boil it. I don't. Want, I mean, that's not what men are going to do, but learn about what they, where they come from, because those little bits of information. Uh, you can start to engage them in conversation in a way that you wouldn't otherwise. Right. And it, and that's how you can break down these silos. I think a little bit, Mm -hmm. it's a simple thing, but I think it's useful for people as they, as they maneuver through this conversation, people are very, um, they they think this topic's very murky. Like -hmm. there's a bunch of pitfalls. It's like snakes and ladders or something. It's like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) they don't really know how to operate, but you know, there are like, in my book, there's a lot of stuff that gives tips on, creating that knowledge base and and so that you have confidence to operate in this yeah. conversation and, and really move the needle forward because our society needs it. Uh, to your earlier point, yeah. we have a melting pot um, of cultures and it's getting more and more every day. So, you know, we mm-hmm. got to get on board. We can't be doing any kind of us and them sort of mentality. Like that's got it. That's the history books stuff. So. The more that you can get ahead, like get into that headspace, the more you're going to shape a positive future for us all.
0: Well said. And Kelly, how can people connect with you? Well, I'm very
1: active on LinkedIn. So I highly recommend people um, reaching out to me there because I'm always posting things. And of course, my website, www.centerforsocialintelligence.ca. Those are the probably the two windows. I'm also on Instagram um, and uh, Twitter, but not as active okay. as I am on LinkedIn.
0: So, Well, Kelly, thank you so much for spending some time with me today. I really enjoyed this conversation and love the things that you're doing. It's so interesting. So thank you for sharing uh, a bit about yourself and what you do with our listeners.
1: Well, I appreciate you having me here today, Jackie. And uh, I hope it's been of, of use to the
0: listeners. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you like this show, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And if you really like it, leave us a rating and review as well. To keep up with our seasons and our guests, follow this podcast on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. This show was edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Jackie Ferguson. Join us for our next episode of Diversity Beyond the Checkbox. Take care of yourself and each other.